That's not a death panel. That's not the doctor telling you that you have to die. It's you telling the doctor that when death is imminent or inevitable, this is how I want the medical community to treat me. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryant, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, we were talking about healthcare terms, and I want to transition this conversation to talk about medical terms. Uh, most of what we've been talking about is healthcare insurance terms, really. I was thinking we were done, but actually there are two other really important ones that we haven't covered. Long-term care insurance. We talked about long-term care a little bit under Medicaid, but there is a long-term care insurance that people can buy. The other is the health savings account. Let's talk about these two topics, these two really important topics to do with insurance that people might need some clarification about. Let's talk about long-term care insurance. What is that? Well, a lot of people, especially as they get older, but also if they've had a terrible illness or injury when they're younger, may need extended care going beyond the limits of ordinary insurance, either Medicare, Medicaid, or privately paid insurance. Uh, usually they'll pay for so much, so much long a stay in the hospital and it starts going beyond that. You need long-term coverage. And people who are having a fatal illness and may linger for a year, two years, three years, and need a certain amount of care, sometimes a great deal of care, most insurance doesn't cover that. And so long-term insurance is a, uh, a really troubled marketplace. For a while there in the 70s and 80s, it started to heat up into the 90s, and people began seeing it as a new opportunity because there were so many of us heading into retirement that uh, it looked like a big market. And so it was pushed pretty hard. But long-term care insurance works more like life insurance than it does uh, regular medical insurance because you pay premiums while you're still well and the premiums are lower the earlier you start and your eligibility doesn't kick in until you're older. And when you're older, then the benefits begin to be available only if you are certified as needing long-term care of the kind that's prescribed by that particular plan, which can have its own limits. And there's a limit on how long that can last. So you might get a couple of years or a year or six months of care in a facility, depending on the plan. And there's a certain amount of money that can be spent. So it's got a lot of limits to it. If you don't ever need long-term care, you die without having to use that. All that money is gone. It goes to pay for other people's care who do need it. And if you decide that the long-term care insurance is too expensive for you to keep paying for, if you cease to pay for it, even in retirement, it all goes away. You're no longer insured. You no longer qualify for any benefits whatsoever. It's not saved up for you somewhere in a magic box. That money has gone into the hands of the insurance company, and some of it is used to pay benefits for people who do succeed. And then, So it's like life insurance and being that thing. You hope you never need it. Uh, if you do, then you'll really appreciate having had it, but it can be quite expensive if you don't ever use it. 
And so it's a, a real difficult decision for many people to make. Now, it used to be not too expensive, but what's happened is with more and more people retiring and aging and medical costs getting higher and higher and insurance generally not covering a lot of in-home care, instead requiring you to go to expensive facilities for your care, um, that has made the long-term care much more expensive than it used to be. So... A lot of us have opted into this system and we pay as much monthly, actually a bit more for our long term care insurance, which we may never see any benefit from whatsoever, as we do for our very sizable supplemental medical insurance, which pays for all our drugs and for a great many of our other expenses. Uh, the problems have multiplied. But this is an interesting system and in it is regulated by the state governments. And it doesn't regulate it in a fashion that looks out for the expense of it in terms of saving the people who buy it money, but in terms of keeping these plans solvent. Uh, you can imagine if you paid for 30, 40 years into a long-term care company and it went bust and didn't have any money anymore and you couldn't get any benefits from it, that would be catastrophic. So what the states do is regulate these systems to say, if you are paying out more than it looks sustainable at your current premium rates, you need to raise those. And a few years ago, many of them went through changes where they raised their rates by 100%, 200%. Ours went up at 70%. That's tough, especially you're just adjusting to living on a limited income. And all of a sudden, this benefit, which you may or may not get and which you've already sunk a lot of money into, uh, do you just throw that all away and say, well, that was a bad idea? Or do you bite the bullet and tighten your belt and find ways to trim your budget so you can continue being covered by it. Long-term care is one of the last remaining really difficult problems. Over and over again, it's pointed out that in-home care, which is what a lot of people would prefer, is much cheaper than uh, being in a facility, but the medical industry and the insurance companies don't really support that very much. It's not in their interest. The other problem, of course, is that long-term care in the home is less expensive, partly because the people who do it are wretchedly paid for the most part. And that's another reason that it would be much better if this were all incorporated into a single-payer system and as part of what we consider regular medical care for everybody and not some optional extra that you have to pay a lot of money for. Also, it's not covered by the ACA, so the doing away with the rules about pre-existing conditions, if it turns out when you apply for your long-term care insurance that you have uh, some kind of cancer, which is in very early stages and probably easily curable, they can nevertheless say, nah, you're a bad risk, we won't take you, or that um, you have some early signs of dementia or something like that. Uh, so the insurance has gotten harder and harder to get. More and more companies have gotten out of the business. As they raise their prices, they lose more and more people. Our plan is not accepting new people anymore at all. They're just scrambling to cover the people that are already signed up. Now, to be fair, it does meet the criterion of being called insurance in that uh you pay for it regardless of whether you are using it at that particular time. Right. But there is this crisis because the only option that many people have for obtaining this necessary long-term care is to, as we said in the previous episode, impoverish themselves and get themselves eligible for Medicaid. Right. 
which will cover these long-term care expenses. We had a friend who was considering divorcing her beloved husband just so that he could be financially independent and be declared eligible for Medicaid. Yeah, and uh, maybe we'll link to a piece I saw in the New York Times recently about the morality of impoverishing yourself to the level that you become eligible for Medicaid for this very purpose. So it is a crisis in the sense that it does become entirely unaffordable. Um, I should be obtaining long-term care insurance. I'll just put it that way. Uh, And maybe I should have started obtaining it a long time ago. I'm not sure how it all works, but it is very expensive to get. And you're telling me that as I age, as I become closer to the time when I might actually need to use it, it's just going to get more expensive, this premium. Absolutely. Hugely. It's not stabilized. And that's one advantage that life insurance has over it is that you'll have a 20-year term policy, say. Uh, As long as you don't die in those 20 years and you continue to keep your policy, you pay one rate and that's all you ever pay. That never goes up in that period of time. But this adjusts yearly? Yeah, can. Oh, man. Oh, boy. And it's already built into the system that it costs more even initially for people of older ages. So the ideal time to buy it is around 55, when most people are not thinking about planning for what to do when they're 80 and 90. Mm -hmm. So you approach the age of retirement, then it gets hugely more expensive, not just because of raises, but because it's built into the price structure. Right, right. But let's just say I'm around 55 and I start paying for it. By the time I'm 65, 70, 75, is my premium going to be as high as all that? Is it going to be a little bit lower because I started paying my insurance earlier? Theoretically, it would be lower than the other increases people would have, but it would still increase. Still are allowed to increase the premiums, not like life insurance in that regard. Yeah, so you could still get some benefit from having started a little bit earlier paying for the insurance. Yeah, it could be quite substantial. Uh huh. Because I'm contrasting that with, um, well, why wouldn't you look at that premium cost and put that much extra into your individual retirement account or something that would actually definitely give you money at the end? I have thought that. I was talking to somebody recently about this and said, well, I'm no expert. Don't run out and take my advice, but ask somebody about it. If you had the discipline and the income to set up a partition in an IRA or an SRA, and just say, we're going to designate this as long-term care savings. So it's sort of a private medical savings account that's not limited the way that the official ones we're going to talk about in a minute are. And just say, we're going to have this invested in stocks and bonds from a reputable firm that has a decent rate of return. You could do a lot better, uh-huh. <laughs> I think, buy yourself all the long-term care you needed when you needed it. But very few people have that level of income and that much self-discipline to not want to dip into that and, you know, add an extension to the house or send the kid to a top-notch college or something. Yes. Well, there is that factor. And also, there's the other factor of if you have a defined amount of money set aside to pay for it uh, and it would cover your long-term care for three and a half years, and uh, you end up in a long-term care facility that is going to take you well beyond that. When you're out of money, you're out of money. And if you don't have an insurance plan to cover for that, then you're just going to be out of luck. Well, that's why an SRA would help in that theoretically it could continue to grow for a long time. And if you don't need it until much later in life, then you could cover a lot more than you could have if you'd put the same amount of money into long-term care insurance. 
And SRA stands for? Supplemental Retirement Account. Mm-hmm. We'll have to do another round of uh, terms that people should know that includes things like IRA, IRA, and SRA, and, and all of that. But that's another day. But there is a savings account that we do need to talk about, and that is the health savings account, the HSA. What can we say about that? Well, that was one of the things besides Part D uh, for drugs that we talked about before on Medicare that was put in under Bush. And this was a way to privatize the whole idea of insurance. And essentially, it's self-insurance. Self-insurance usually means liability insurance and stuff that uh, you just don't buy any insurance and you hope you have enough money on hand to pay for any catastrophes that happen. And it's sort of like that, only there's a benefit to it that you get to deduct an amount on your income taxes when you put it into a medical health savings account. And there are problems with that. First of all, it's hard to anticipate how much you would need. And I think there's a limit on how much you can put into it, too. I don't think it would deal with catastrophic problems. No, that's correct. There is a limit to how much you can set into a health savings account. You can get a tax write-off. If you earn enough money to have paid taxes, then you can write off the expenses that you put into your health savings account on your own. Right. And the number of people who do not pay income taxes is immense. Forty five percent of the American people do not earn enough money to pay income tax at all. And so whenever you hear a conservative trying to help poor people by giving them a tax credit, they're talking nonsense. Right. This came up early in Trump's administration when his daughter was proposing that child care be subsidized this way, that families that couldn't afford a lot of child care could have a tax exemption for the money they paid for their child care. If you can't afford to pay taxes, that's the problem. The people that child care is the biggest challenge for and the ones who desperately need it are the ones who do not get paid enough to even pay income taxes, let alone go beyond the standard deductions. Right. And that seems to be the standard Republican line is, well, we won't cover it. What we'll do is we'll give you a tax break when you pay for it on your own. Well, most of us don't really need tax breaks. And that includes many of us who earn well into a middle class or even upper middle class income uh, who don't really need tax breaks. We need services. We need to make sure that when disaster strikes, like a very bad medical expense, we are not going to go broke trying to pay for it. Tax breaks don't really do us much good. But I will say in favor of the health savings account, and I believe that this may have changed under the Affordable Care Act. I believe that there's a structure that works a little bit differently. My initial understanding of the health savings account was that it was just this really poorly thought out idea where you would do just that, save money in order to cover medical expenses when they came up. So you would have a health savings account, uh, you would get the tax benefit for having put money into that. Okay, that's all great so far, so good. Uh, but as you say, there is a limit to how much money you can put into it per year. But, you know, it doesn't cover if you get hit by the proverbial bus some accident hits you all at once uh, and there's a big medical expense, an urgent care expense, something like that, you're not going to be able to cover hardly anything on your own. 
And the conservatives like to argue this kind of thing, saying, well, the government is still giving you a big benefit. They're saving you money by saving you on your taxes. But of course, their secret to all that is the reason they're so enthusiastic about it. So they're also in favor of cutting taxes, whatever possible. They don't just want to save you money, as they say. They're trying to cut the government's budget overall. They don't want the government to have as much income as it does. Right. But as I said, there was, I believe, a restructuring of this or at least a fundamental way in which the health savings account does work under the Affordable Care Act, making it something of a more attractive, viable option for some people. And if you are given the option in your employer insurance to have your employer contribute to your health savings account at a matched rate, for example, to what you contribute to the health savings account, you still will reap the insurance benefit of having an out-of-pocket limit for the year. So it will not be the case that if you're struck by lightning or something very bad happens to you, that you cannot possibly pay for all of your medical expenses with what's in your health savings account. You still will have a limit to how much you will need to pay in that calendar year toward your medical expenses. And when that limit is met, and some of it will be paid out of your health savings account, when that limit is met, you will reap the regular insurance benefit of having insurance coverage. So these accounts are not as vile as they sound at the outset, but you have to be very careful, look very carefully and compare those against the others. And we're circling back, Paul, time and again, just how much study one could do of all of these systems and all of this insurance and still not know what the correct answer is. And yet there's this looming solution, this single payer type solution that would eliminate our need to know any of this stuff. We could just get on with our lives. Right. And that's just another benefit of the Affordable Care Act that goes away if they decide to kill it. Right. Yeah. Well, I do want to transition to talk about some other things that are related more to general medical conditions or generally in the area of medicine. They are related to health care, health care insurance. But these topics, they won't go away if we have single payer or not. Well, let's start with one that's actually not going away because it's never existed. Okay, what's that? And that's death panels. Oh, death panels. All right. Let's talk about death panels. Okay. During the debate over the Affordable Care Act, Sarah Palin came up with this claim that there would be these government panels that would be debating whether your mom should die or not, whether she should be allowed to have medical treatment. And it became very widespread, believed by a lot of people, although it was totally made up. Uh, there was absolutely nothing in the act that was anything like that. It was labeled by PolitiFact as the lie of the year of 2009. I can't remember where she got the idea. But anyway, um, it was just such a striking idea. I think it was reinforced by the decades ago debate over HMOs. And the discussion of HMOs would decide who could live and die because they were limiting access to health care. And they were imagining, OK, well, the government just becomes like one giant HMO and they're even worse than private people. And so they're going to you know, decide who gets to live and who gets to die. This was absurd. Then it got 
horribly confused in people's minds, and the waters were deliberately muddied by some politicians, with a provision in the ACA that said Medicare would pay for doctor's appointments for patients to discuss living wills, health care directives, and other end-of-life issues. And so they were making it sound as if if you wanted insurance from the government under ACA, you would be required to go and talk about how you were going to die. And they were afraid that, uh, you know, relatives would be able to say, well, um, you know, mom, it's going to be really expensive if we give her this cancer care. And um, there were all kinds of other arguments that were put forward that there would be somehow somebody other than the patient being able to decide where the whole point of that provision was to empower the patient to be able to say most people would prefer to have control over the way they spend their last days. But. It's not happening for a lot of people. And if we can just put a provision in there that they don't have to pay extra to a doctor just to have this conversation and decide, how would you like to be treated when you have a terminal illness? Um, It's the government saying, okay, we'll pay for that. That's not a death panel. That's not the doctor telling you that you have to die. It's you telling the doctor that when death is imminent or inevitable, this is how I want the medical community to treat me. And that's just almost the opposite of the way it was sold to the public. There's still a lot of confusion out there about it. So it's in effect now. And if you go in for your annual checkup with your physician, uh, you're liable to be asked, do you have an end of life plan? What are your preferences? And so on. And that's been something that doctors really, really appreciated. That could help lower expenses a lot, as well as uh, saving a lot of pain and agonizing but it's something that some people are still opposed to because they got their brains scrambled by this ridiculous death panels rumor. The idea was, or the image in your head is, there's a panel of doctors or some third-party arbitrators who are going to determine your fate. This is beyond absurd that this kind of thing could ever go on. And in fact, that kind of consultation that you're talking about, making sure that people have an end-of-life plan some sort of directive that they can sign off on while they're in good health and while they're in sound mind. People pay good money to lawyers to set these things up, you know. Uh, It's actually a cost savings for people if the medical community is directly involved with helping to set that up. Well, interestingly, we recently redid our wills just to update them and were convinced by the lawyer to update our end-of-life care directives as well. And she argued strongly that it's better to do that through a lawyer than a physician, although you still talk to physicians about them, but the actual wording and the document and everything, um, they know a lot. And of course, they get paid to do this, so they have an incentive. But there are some real advantages to it. I think it's something you shouldn't just automatically sign a form that your doctor gives you that may have been designed not with your particular preferences in mind as much. Yes, and I'm not advocating firing all the lawyers or kicking them out of the process. What I'm saying is that for people who have not done this process with a lawyer, having done it with a physician, a medical facility is better than nothing. Yes. It can be a very messy and very problematic thing to get to the situation, the crisis situation, where some sort of decisions need to be made and we don't know what those decisions should be. 
And right now, the ACA is paying for that service, which is a great step forward that would be eliminated if the ACA went away. Right. Yeah. Now, this death paddle idea makes me think of the recent case, the tragic case of Charlie Gard, the baby in the UK. Uh, This has been held up by the right wing as an example of a death panel. Mm. This is what we're talking, the dangers of socialized medicine. Without getting into the moral arguments, I think we can just say that that was quite an individualized case. Well, it was interesting because it had to do with a law, I guess now that hasn't been around that long, protecting children from being subjected to painful but pointless treatments. And the ruling of the authorities in England was that what the experimental treatment that the parents were advocating for would have caused the child needless suffering and just about zero chance of any success. So that was a case where they were intervening on behalf of the child as against the parents. And that can be done, of course, there are parents who uh, refuse to have their children inoculated, for instance. The state can override that and go ahead and mandate inoculations in some cases. depends on the laws in a particular area. Um, Parents can be, you know, who decide to use nothing but herbal medicine and not allow their children to receive conventional care. Sometimes there can be interventions and so on. It was that kind of a decision. It really wasn't a group of people saying this child is not worth saving the way it was presented. Right, exactly. That's why I say it was an individualized case. The fact that it was such big news, I think, should tell you that this is extraordinarily rare. And um, as you say, the medical profession was pretty much unanimous here that they believed the baby was suffering and would only suffer more from this kind of treatment. So it's something that pains me to even bring up, but it is rare, thankfully rare, that that sort of thing comes up. And this idea of the death panels, that was put out as a sort of a ubiquitous generalized thing that would happen to everybody, regardless of your condition. Mm -hmm. Really, really dumb to ever think that that could come to fruition. Paul, we've done it again. We spent the whole episode talking about healthcare insurance terms and Affordable Care Act terms. I still want to get back to uh, some of these other ones, generic drugs, palliative care, hospice care, end-of-life advanced directive. We hit on that a little bit on this episode. Some of these other ones that are more general medical terms. And inevitably, we will be circling it back to some of the health insurance terms, I'm sure, But we've got to save all that for another time. All right. Thank you, Paul. Okay, so long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com with free shipping. Thanks for listening.